All right. Hey, you can have a seat if you want. That'd be awesome. And we're going to talk about, at the end of our time together, uh, tie that song in and about how if we're going to really live the full good life that God has for us is that we need to be thinking about that story that we just sang about and our consciousness that needs to be there all the time. And so, hey, last week when we started, we talked about Easter. Uh, We said that a typical way that an Easter service would start, tradition would be that a leader would get up and say something like, uh, he has risen, and then the crowd would say, so you remember we did this last week. I want to do that again this week, and here's why. Uh, Is that right after Jesus was raised from the dead, uh, that was the primary focus of every one of his followers, as you can imagine. We talked about this in my community group this week. We talked about the fact that gods don't die and men don't come back to life. And Jesus did both, died as God and was resurrected back to life. And that was what transitioned and changed this hapless group of disciples and followers into the greatest movement our world has ever known. It wasn't because they had a purpose. It wasn't because they had a cause. It was because they had seen a dead man who would come back to life. And tradition says, is that as they were walking around in early Jerusalem, that, that they would greet each other, and they were so in, in, you know, enmeshed into this whole idea about Jesus' resurrection that they'd actually greet each other in that way. He is risen. He has risen indeed as a way to encourage each other. So we're going to do that again today, and just to a way to encourage each other about our risen Jesus, okay? He has risen. He has risen you know what? You guys don't have to do it again. You're just so awesome. Yeah, this is great. All kinds of energy. That's really fun. So go ahead and grab your message notes, if you would, out of your program, and you're going to be able to follow along today. They look like this, and you want to have these handy. Write down some thoughts. Bible verses will be here. If you have your Bible, turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be there today. In fact, we're going to be in chapter 1 for the next eight weeks, okay? We're going to just dig this thing apart and look at what God has to say to us about living the good life that he came to bring. And then I'm going to read this verse to us first, John 10, 10 again, uh, that Jesus says, just to give us this kind of jumping off place today. Would you read it out loud with me? Ready, go. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. So I'm going to begin today with this question, thinking about that verse. Jesus says, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, then you won't be able to answer this question because it won't really, you know, relate to where you are in your reality. Our hope and desire is that you at some point would say yes to Jesus Christ. And today and in this series, you're going to see the good life that he promises to those who say yes to him. But those of you who have said yes to him at some point, is this, if I were to ask you, Are you having a rich and satisfying life? How many would say yes? You don't raise your hand right now. You don't have to, you know, because you may be honest and say, you know what? Honest, I'm not living a fully rich and fully satisfying life. I'll just ask it another way. How many of you say that you're living the good life? You don't have to raise your hand. Just want this to be a rhetorical question. Then you're thinking inside, am I living the good life? Well, it all depends on how you define it, right? It all depends on the definition you want to give of the life that you're living, whether it's good or not. Now, all kinds of studies have been done in our culture right now to try to understand 
uh, how people are, you know, looking at life and how they're feeling, all kinds of indexes, indices and surveys being done. And some look at life right now, and if you were to listen to the news and the doom and gloom that we hear so much on the news and from the media and read the bloggers that are so prevalent today, uh, you might be led to believe that, you know what, it's not possible because the glory days are over. The glory days are behind us. And some question if we'll ever be able to live the good old days again. In fact, I was reading an article in Friday's newspaper, and it was based upon a survey of the millennial generation. We have lots of millennials in our crowd, in our church. And millennials would say that in that survey, and they would say, is it likely that you will be able to have or attain the same level of happiness or satisfaction that your parents or grandparents have? The millennials rate themselves as no on that. No, they look at life bleakly. They look at the future bleakly. If you look at it and compare it to what their parents or grandparents were able to have. We live in a time when here's what we hear about, folks. We hear about income inequality. And that's a real thing, income inequality. And so you look at the, the 1%, as it's been labeled, the ultra-rich, and then you look at the rest of the world, and there's a huge gap between the 1% and where many of the rest of even Americans live, let alone the rest of the world. We hear things, and one of the headlines last week actually surprised me that this would be a headline, and it said that Russia is leading us to World War III. That's an alarmist kind of thinking. We hear things about globalization. We hear things about the whole idea of resource depletion. Terrorism is on all of our lips and all of our thoughts almost all the time. Global warming. We hear about global warming a lot. Sexual trafficking. You know, all of a sudden we realize that there's this thing called sexual trafficking. And many of us have never heard of it. But it's, it's the second largest crime industry in the world. Sexual trafficking. And we just need to be aware of this, folks, and what's going on. We hear about this. We hear about these kinds of things. Drought. I mean, our state is just encompassed in this drought. And what does the future hold for water? And we all base you know, our hopes on patterns and whether it's going to change or not. Uh, personally, I'm involved in this whole issue of spiraling college costs. And, <laughs> and I just let you know, they're not spiraling downward. Just kind of heads up about that for those of you who are past there, aren't there yet. And then other people are facing unemployment and then increasing health care costs, all that goes on, family, relational breakdown. It seems like every week there's another person kind of goes off the deeper end and goes ballistic and kills somebody just for no reason or groups of people. And you listen to this news and then you want to ask yourself, is it possible to live the good life? Is it possible? Once again, it all depends on how you define it how you define the good life. And I'm going to begin today by helping us a little bit to define this idea of what it is, what is the good life according to cultural standards, and then what is the good life according to biblical standards. See, those of us culturally, we tend to define the good life as financial stability, job security, and relational unity. And then to be able to have as many possessions as I want. So you just add that on at the back end. To have all the latest gadgets and toys and cars and all the things that come out. And basically, the good life, according to culture, is determined how you're doing in certain measurements of success. And most of them are circumstantial in nature. 
one of, the, one of my pastor's picks for this series. It's called Lost Virtues of Happiness. And I just want to read you a couple of quotes from this book. And I'm going to begin with the cultural quotes uh, that he talks about, about the values that culture lives with and is looking for for happiness. A recent dictionary definition of happiness is this, a sense of pleasurable satisfaction. Notice, he says, that happiness is identified with a feeling, and more specifically, a feeling very close to pleasure. Today, the good life is a life of good feeling, and that is the goal of most people for themselves and their children. He goes on to say, the current understanding of happiness identifies it as a pleasurable feeling. Pleasant feelings are surely better than unpleasant ones, but the problem today is that people are obsessively concerned with feeling happy. People are slaves to their feelings. Feelings are wonderful servants, but terrible masters. When people make happiness their goal, they do not find it, and as a result, start living their lives vicariously through identification with celebrities. Does that sound anything like our culture? People literally need to get a life. (laughs) They need to find something bigger and more important to live for than pleasurable satisfaction, and they need to find a new strategy for daily life besides self-absorption. Besides self-absorption. Now, that's what he's talking about, about the cultural view of happiness or the good life. Now, let's just compare that a little bit to what the Bible describes as the good life. And I just want to, kind of, before I read a quote of his, I want to just kind of let you know my thoughts about this. The biblical view of good life is intimacy with God and others. Intimacy with God and others. Integrity and character. The ability to feel compassion, not happy, compassion, and to have a purpose greater than self-absorption. So that's what I would say would be the biblical, but let's just read what this guy has to say, because he has a lot of really good things uh, to say about also the biblical view. Let me get to this next page. Here we go. He says this, and he's talking about defining the good life or defining happiness based upon how people defined it in days past. Uh, one of my mentors, he ta- he, he's taught me this. He says, if you really want to understand life, you need to read life as it was being talked about by people who lived it 200, 300, 400, 600, 1,000 years before, because they're not in your cultural framework. And so they're going to be viewing it in a different way. And so that's what this guy's talking about as well. And he talks about the ageless definition of happiness all the way back to Moses, Jesus, Plato, other writers. And he says this, this is the ageless definition of happiness. Happiness is a life well lived, a life of virtue and character, a life that manifests wisdom, kindness, and goodness. That's the biblical definition of happiness, the ageless definition of happiness. C.S. Lewis says it this way, and this is the dilemma we face. He says, you can't get second things by putting them first. You get second things only by putting first things first. In the series, what we're going to do is we're going to look at first things. 
We're going to look at what God has to say and his guidance to us. And he wants only the best, right? Would you agree? That God wants only our best? And so we're going to look at what he has to say. And we're going to walk through these verses in 2 Peter chapter 1. uh, Only the first eight verses for the next eight weeks. And we're going to cover many of them today. uh, And then next week as well. So today's foundational. We really need to understand today is kind of laying the foundation And then next week, we'll lay the process. So foundation today, process next week. These are both essential. So I just want to say, this is kind of like priming the pump, inviting you back. Next week is essential to understanding the series. So if you've already got plans, you already know you can't be here next week, you need to go get the app, you need to download it, you need to watch the service on your device, or you need to get home and you need to watch it online after next week when you miss that service because it's foundational to understanding the rest of this series and understanding what we're going to be talking about. Okay, so let's begin. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. This letter is from Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. He says, I am writing to you who share the same precious faith we have. This faith was given to you because of the justice and fairness of Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. May God give you more and more grace and peace as you grow in your knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. I want you to circle three words, and we're going to look at these three words today as the foundation. Knowledge, grace, and peace. Knowledge, grace, and peace are the foundation on which I build my life if I'm going to experience the good life that God promises. So let's just, you know, to kind of set the scene a little bit. Uh, about what's going on. Context. Got to remember Peter. Who's Peter? Well, Peter's the same guy we talked about last week. If you weren't here last Sunday, I encourage that you would actually go out and watch our Easter service from last week. He's one of the guys we talked about last week. And at the end of Jesus' uh, trial, Peter had uh, denied Jesus Christ three times. And then uh, at the end of Jesus' You know, after he was dead, when Jesus rose back again, then Jesus redeemed Peter, called him back, forgave him, gave him a commission to, you know, be the builder of his church. So that's the same Peter. Peter is an eyewitness. That's a key thing. He's an eyewitness. He was an eyewitness when Jesus fed 5,000 people. He was an eyewitness when Jesus walked on the water. Peter even tried it himself for a little bit. He was an eyewitness of the, when Jesus was transfigured. And uh, uh, you can read about that in the Bible. And so, and God spoke down words of affirmation on Jesus' life. He was an eyewitness of Jesus' trial. He's an eyewitness of Jesus' crucifixion. He was an eyewitness who saw Jesus. And then as Jesus was raised from the dead, then he was hands-on trained by Jesus himself for the ministry that he was actually carrying out now. And now Peter is at the end of his life. And once again, we've talked about this a lot lately in the series that we were just in, the famous last words of Jesus from the cross, is the words someone speaks at the end of their life are sometimes the most passionate and most important. And so he's speaking words at the end of his life. He's writing to his church. He's saying, you got to get this. You got to know this. This is so essential that you were able to understand. And he says, he says, um, he wants everyone who reads this to understand that he is both a servant and an apostle. So when he says servant and apostle, what he's saying is, he's saying, I am of the lowest. So a servant was the lowest. And I'm an apostle, I'm of the highest, because the apostles were the leaders of the church. They were the ones that would get the, the designation of being with Jesus. So in this structure, they were of the highest, 
but he was also a servant. He was of the lowest. And the reason he gives himself this designation at the start of the book is he wants us to know who are reading it thousands, 2,000 years later that he is just like us. Sometimes we make Bible characters out to be mythical and unreachable and not real. And he wants us to know he is just like us. He's wanting us to know he's no better than us. He's no different than we are. He's just like us, and we can be like him, like him, when we come to faith, when we come to faith. He says we all share the same precious faith, and that word precious means potent, means potent. We all, everybody has the same faith. When I say yes to Jesus Christ, I have the same faith that the Pope has when he says yes to Jesus Christ. I have the same faith that Billy Graham has. I have the same faith that Mother Teresa had when she was alive. I have the same faith as Peter the Apostle. And that faith was given through belief in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And when we say yes to Jesus, when we say yes to him, then what Peter wants us to know is that every one of us, nobody's excluded here by what you've done in the past, what you think about yourself, what someone's told you about yourself, that every one of us can be changed. Every single one of us. And he was revolutionized by the gospel and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he wants you and me to know that the same is true for us. He wants us to understand, hey, there are no tears to faith, you know, you know, measurements. There are no, we're all equal at the foot of the cross, and we're all equal by our belief in Jesus Christ. And he wants us to know that. And so the first thing you want to write down that we need to understand is we need to understand about this. We need to establish our position. Establish our position. And that's key. That's the first foundational point that we need to make. So as I said earlier, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ and you're just listening to me today and sitting there a little skeptical at this point, wondering what this is all about, and it sounds a little heavy, a little not quite relatable, I just want you to understand that what I'm talking about right now is for you. Is This is the foundational piece. If you want to experience the full life that God's called, then this would be the step at some point that you need to take to enter into the life of faith that he's offered for everyone. So what that means is every one of us at some point has to say yes to the offer of forgiveness, the offer of cleansing, the offer of deliverance, and the offer of purpose that Jesus Christ made possible on the cross. So here's the deal. So I was just talking about. Our position is this. Without Jesus, we are separated from God. But with Jesus, we are united with God. Without Jesus, we're outside of God's family. But with Jesus, we're part of God's family. So everything it says about God's family will be true for us and Jesus. Without Jesus, we're separated from the life he talked about when he says that it would be satisfying and that it would be full. But with Jesus, as we talked about a few weeks ago, that we are in life, then we can have the full life. A few weeks ago, we talked about this idea of substitution or justification. And so the whole idea is this. The reason this is so essential to us understanding as we go forward into the future of this series and the future of your life is this, that on the cross, Jesus took the punishment I deserved for the life I had lived. He took the punishment I deserved for the sins I had committed. And on the cross, 
he gave me the, God gave me the blessing that Jesus deserved for the life that he lived. So he took upon my sin and he took upon the shame of my sin and I received the blessing that was due him because he lived a sinless and perfect life. And that's the position that we're in. And Jesus said this, he says, I will go to the cross. I'm gonna go to the cross for you so that when the father looks at you, he sees a perfect record of righteousness. When he looks at you, he sees virtue. He sees this record of virtue. Okay, so in order to understand this, we're talking about the knowledge that we need to form this foundation. We need to understand who Jesus is. And Peter gives us four declarations in these verses of who Jesus is. I want you to write these down and then just think about these later on this week. In the first one, he says, Jesus is Christ. Jesus Christ. Now, for some of us, we've heard that used so often out of the church context and maybe even with some church people, I don't know, but we've used it as a swear word. Jesus Christ. And it's that kind of way that we've heard that. Or some of us may think that just like I have a name, Ron Thompson, that Jesus Christ was his first and last name. But Christ, we need to understand this, Christ is a designation. It's a title that he had. Jesus Christ. And Christ was equal to the Old Testament term Messiah. It's equivalent to the Old Testament Messiah. And Messiah means the anointed one. So Christ means the anointed one. So in Jewish tradition, what would happen is, is that you would have these times when you would anoint people for their service. Like we commissioned people today, that there would be an anointing added to it where oil would be poured over someone and you would commission them for service. And there were three groups of people that you would anoint in the Old Testament. You would anoint a king, you would anoint a priest, and you would anoint a prophet, All three were anointed in the Old Testament. And what the belief was by the Israelites, the Jews, the belief was the Messiah would come and he would combine all three offices. All three would be one and he would be anointed as the Christ, as king, as prophet, and as priest. He would be the promised one, the hope of all the people. So that's who he is. He's the promised one, the hope of all people. Second is this, he's called Savior. Savior. Now, what does the Savior do? Saves. Uh, It's just that easy, okay? Next one. No, really, let's talk about that a little bit. A Savior delivers. A Savior rescues. Jesus is called from the beginning the one who will save his people from their sins. More specifically, what I want you to understand today as we move towards communion in a little bit is that he has saved us from the consequences of our sin. He saved us from the consequences of our sin. And the consequence of sin without Jesus is punishment and wrath. And he saved us from that consequence. He took the punishment that was due us on the cross when he died. Third is God. He was called God here. Now, calling him God was, you know, kind of laying the... Uh, drawing a line in the sand for anyone who had doubts that Jesus was God. And so just a few decades after Jesus was risen from the dead, we, we have evidence that the 
biblical writers and the well, those who were closest to Jesus were affirming the fact that he was both God and man, that he was deity. So those who would believe, they'd look and say, hey, you know what? The Bible was written maybe 500 years later. And it was projecting back. You know, They were writing the stories. They were making up a new religion. You got to know that Peter was writing as an eyewitness, and there were other eyewitnesses. And he says, as an eyewitness, I will attest to the fact that through the Holy Spirit, I'm speaking this, that Jesus is God. God come in flesh. And we need to understand that. And then fourth, he's Lord. He's Lord. Now, every time I say Lord, it sounds like I'm in Oklahoma, you know, like <laughs> coming out that way. I can't help it. You know, that's where I'm from. Okay, so here we go. Now, Lord, here's what it is. And we need to understand this. Lord designates one in authority and power over everything. Authority and power over everything. He is ruler. He's designated royalty. He's one who would be worshiped. He's one that would be bowed down to out of honor and respect. The Bible says he's the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And in the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And he is Lord over physical things. He's Lord over spiritual things. He's Lord over the emotional world in which we live in. He is Lord over all things. And we need to understand that. That's the knowledge that's going to help us. Because if he is Lord, and I'm going to step forward into the good life, and he's over everything, then I need to listen to what he says. And I need to trust it, and I need to do as he's called me to do. So when we're in Christ, that's our position, folks. And nothing is stronger, nothing is better, nothing is more fulfilling, and nothing is more satisfying. And when we're in him, he invites us to go deeper and deeper and not just stay at this, what I would call a nominal Christian level. Nominal Christian level is, I said yes to Jesus Christ, I got my ticket to heaven, that must be it. That's not what God invites us into. He invites us into, look what it says next. Let your roots grow down into him. Let your lives be built on him. So that's what he's inviting us into is this relationship where now my roots are going deep into him. And because the deeper my roots go, the more nourishment I can get, the stronger I am, the more able I am to withstand the things of life And as I follow him. And what we're going to do in this series is, you know, beginning two weeks from now, is we're going to learn a process or steps that we can take to deepen our roots into him so that we can be stronger and so that we can experience the good life that he's promised to everyone who does that. So there's the knowledge portion, okay? Second is this. If I'm going to pursue the good life, I must embrace God's power. I must embrace God's power. And God's power, for our purposes, comes in the form of grace. And that was the second word that we circled in that section was grace. God's power comes through grace. Second Peter 1 verse 3. By his divine power, God has given us everything. Would you circle that? Everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him. There's the knowledge part again. And this word for knowledge is not like wisdom. This word for knowledge is like intimate understanding intimate understanding. I mean, I know lots of information about our President Obama. Lots of information about him. But do I really know President Obama? No, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. But I deeply know 
my wife, Kimberly. Deeply know her because we are in an intimate relationship. And when it says know here, he's inviting us into an intimate relationship with the God of the universe who wants us to know him intimately. The one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. So this ties back, power ties back to grace of verse 2. And the grace is the fuel that empowers us to grow. The fuel that empowers us to grow. I love Dallas Willard's you know, impression of this. I mean, he's talking about the fact that we weren't just saved and, got, and received a ticket to heaven, but we were saved to live in the kingdom. And living in the kingdom needs God's power and God's grace and abundance. And he says, therefore, we should be burning through grace like a jet burns through jet fuel. Jet fuel. We should be burning through it all the time because we all need his power. And Peter says that through God's divine power, what we, what we have is we have the ability to turn our intentions into reality, our intentions into reality. Grace is God acting in our lives generously and powerfully to do for us and in us what we cannot do for ourselves. That's what grace is. Grace is a power source for life. And Peter wants to know that the good life, the good life that we all desire that leads to being able to uh, to live this godly life, it comes from the grace that he's placed in us. Now, with that said, I, I want to uh, put some pressure on today. Just be honest. I'm going to put a little pressure on. And I don't typically come at things quite this way. But what I want to say about this is um, what Peter is telling us and how God has been applying this to my life is that I'm going to say it in the negative because I think there's more pressure in this. In the negative is that based upon what we've just heard and what we're learning and are going to continue to learn in this series, that there is no excuse for a life that hasn't been changed by a relationship with Jesus Christ. There is no excuse. In the pot, and you know, this is, this is really hard for me to say, to admit that I've liked excuses. I like the grace part that says we just accept everybody like they are. And by gummer, I want to be accepted just like I am. And, you know, I like that part. But there's a part of this that what we're going to learn in this series is that with God's power, with God's grace, there is no habit that can't be changed. There's no wound or no broken spot that can't be healed. And so what I need to do is, I need to, am I stuck? And if I'm stuck, what does God want me to do? What does he want me to receive that's going to move me beyond this place to the good place he wants me to be? And so that's going to be one of the challenges. We're going to come at it from the positive most of the time, but I just wanted to kind of say, you know what? There's a, there's a kind of a negative push to this. The positive is to say, because he can do everything, he can change anything. And so therefore, I need to be hopeful that the things I, where I feel stuck right now, but I don't want to stay stuck. That's what I want to pressure us with a little bit today. Okay, third thing is this. Successfully pursuing the good life, I need to experience God's promises. I need to experience his promises. And so when I experience his promises, this ties to peace because I believe that the number one sensation that you're going to have when you trust in his promises is you're going to be at peace. There's just no way out of it. 
If you trust that God is all-powerful and God is in charge of all things and sovereign, then I can face everything that comes with me, at me, with peace. And the Bible says it's actually a peace that passes understanding because if or to look at my life, I, I don't know how I'm being peaceful right now. This is, I don't see how this is going to turn out. But because I trust God, then I'm going to face it with peace. This is what it says in verse 4. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you, enable you, key word there, to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desire. So what he's saying is, because of God's promises, I have the assurance that I can share in his divine nature. We're going to talk a lot about this next week. And I have the ability to escape the corruption in my life because of the, my sinful choices. And so we can have peace then and peace of mind that God will do as he says. Trust in his promises that when God says it, I'm going to believe it. And I'm going to trust that even though I can't see it, that I'm still going to believe that he has said it and I'm going to do as he guides. Okay? So there's the peace part. It's tied to promises. And then the last idea, we're going to move into communion now. The last idea is this, and it's so really key to the whole thing I've talked about today, key to the series. And I'd say it's even really the, the one key to the good life other than the foundation on Jesus. And I must remember God's provision. I must remember God's provision And we come to communion a little bit. That's all about remembering. And so that's why I tied these two together. And so I want to read verses 8 and 9. This will be the the last verses that we're going to use in this series. So I'm going to bookend this by reading them today. And it says this, the more you grow, in other words, the more you grow in your ability to experience the good life, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But those who fail to develop, so this is a key, you need to hear this. Those who fail to develop in the ways that we're going to talk about in this series, those who fail to develop the good life, those who fail to develop in knowledge, those who fail to develop in grace, those who fail to develop in peace, those are short-sighted or blind. Short-sighted or blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins. So he's saying two things here. First thing he's saying. He's saying short-sighted or blind means that I'm in my reality and I am thinking about my next step and because I'm short-sighted or blind, I can't see the next step to take into the future. And so what I have to do is I have to take off the blinders and I have to open my eyes and I have to realize that God is in charge of the future. And as he's in charge of the future, I can trust him and I can walk forward with him even though I don't understand where it is he's taking me or what it is that he's asking me to do. But when I take those steps forward and I know the Holy Spirit's guided me and God said to, and this is the path, I can trust that it is going to lead me to the good life, the life he has for me. And I can trust him with that. The second thing he says is the reason that we get stuck and we don't move forward in our process, in our progress toward the good life that he offers is that we forget what he's done for us on the cross. And he, he makes this so clear to us that what he's saying is, is that I want you to keep in your consciousness at the front of your mind In all of your thoughts, and I know I'm talking some heavy, hard, deep stuff right here, because there's so much that preoccupies us in our world today. 
that if you're really going to be able to live the good life, you need to remember at all times the cross. You need to remember our logo. Our logo is the cross. And you need to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. And I don't get it. I really don't. I'm honest. I don't, I don't understand this. I just know it to be true from experience. I don't understand how and how this actually works. But he says, if you will focus on the cross, I'm going to take care of it. If you'll focus on the cross, then you're going to understand what it is that I'm calling you to change, what it is I'm calling you to do, how I see you, and how I've called you to live life. When we do that. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, he calls this idea that I'm talking about here a life-controlling consciousness of the reality of what Jesus did for us by dying on the cross. And that's why I believe Jesus said, periodically, you should have communion so that you can remember me. Now, what Paul, I mean, what Peter's saying here and what I'm going to challenge us to is that we have to go to a whole new level of remembering where we keep it in the front of our consciousness at all times. But today we're going to practice remembering through communion. So I'm going to ask our ushers that they'll move into place and they're going to move into their positions right now and just hold right there. Uh, until I get to the place where uh, we're going to ask us to serve communion. And when they serve us, what we're going to do is they're going to be these trays that pass by. I'm going to ask you to take a piece of the bread, a cup of the juice. I'm going to ask you to hold it until we're all served, okay? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to listen to some music, and then we're going to have communion together. So I'm going to wait till they get into place and get, get ready. In fact, while they're getting ready, would you bow your heads and let's pray? God, I just thank you so much for this opportunity. And first of all, I just want to give opportunity to those who have never said yes to Jesus. They've never placed themselves in Christ, as we've talked about today. For some reason, they've just always said no to you, but today they want to say yes. And if you wanted to, you just say, Jesus, as much as I understand it, I say yes to you today. I want to receive your forgiveness. I've sinned. I want to receive your cleansing. I'm dirty. I want to receive, receive freedom. I'm in bondage. I want to receive a purpose because I've been purposeless. And Jesus, I want you to guide me the rest of my days. And for all of us now, as we're served communion, ushers, go ahead and start. I'm just going to ask that as you're served communion, that you would just stay in prayer, that you wouldn't talk to the people around you, and you would be thinking and asking God in prayer, show me what you want me to remember from the cross today about what you've done for me. you can think about the verse that's on the screen meditate on the truth of that verse
So when Jesus, right before he was going to go to the cross, he said to those his disciples that he made reference to his body and to his blood, the bread and the juice. And he said, do this to remember me. And right now we want to remember that the bread represents his body. And as we've looked at in the past series and you've seen and heard and understand is that his body took the punishment for all my sin. All your sin. It was broken for you. Would you eat this and say, thank you, Jesus. said that the juice represents his blood that would be shed and poured out as a sign of the covenant that God is making that we are now acceptable to him and we are now embraced by him and that nothing, nothing can change that. We drink and we thank him. Jesus, I pray that this reminder today of your death for us will be in our minds. And I pray that as we listen to this song, that it will move into our hearts as we reflect on your cross. Mercy reigns and 
thank you for your gift. We thank you that you saved us, made it possible for us to be in relationship with God the Father. That by grace, we can understand that we have now power to change. We want to say, we want to believe in your promises. We want to trust you and walk forward in peace. And I just pray that in this series, you would help us to grow in our knowledge, our intimacy of what it's like to walk with you, to be in you, and to experience the good life that you brought. It's in your name we pray. Amen.